0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the conviction of Stephen Bannon on two counts of defying congressional subpoenas and discuss his grandstanding outside the courthouse as a fundraising ploy, since Bannon is the mini-me of grifters in the shadow of the king of grifters, Donald Trump. Joining us is Adele Stan an independent journalist and long-time chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics. She is the winner of the Hillman Prize in opinion and analysis journalism, and her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, The American Prospect, and The New Republic, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. And we will discuss her article at The New Republic. Steve Bannon will be convicted, and he'll probably be just fine with that. Then we'll examine the rise of the right and assess the size of the coalition of white supremacist confederates, Christian nationalist right-wing militias, alt-right neo-Nazis, and American Firsters, and how American fascism was never exorcised, but was merely obscured beneath romantic myth-making. Joining us is Sarah Churchwell, a professor of American Literature and Humanities at the School of Advanced Study of the University of London. She's the author of Behold America, the Entangled History of America First, and The American Dream, and the latest book just out is The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. Then finally we will investigate the crisis in Sri Lanka and the extent of the corruption, mismanagement and looting of the country by the ruling Paska family and speak with Deepa Olapalli, Research Professor of International Affairs and Associate Director of the Segoe Center for Asian Studies at George Washington University, whose research focuses on the international relations of South Asia. She also directs the Rising Powers Initiative, a major research program that tracks and analyzes foreign policy debates in aspiring powers of Asia and Eurasia. And we will discuss the humanitarian crisis brought on by the country's default on $54 billion in debt and how India is stepping up to help while China is missing in action. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. Or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. Joining us now is Adele Stan, an independent journalist and longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics. She is the winner of the Hillman Prize in opinion and analysis journalism, and her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, The American Prospect, The New Republic, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. And she has an article of The New Republic. Steve Bannon will be convicted, and he'll probably be just fine with that. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adele Stan.
1: Great to be with you
0: again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Adele. And Steve Bannon, of course, it was grandstanding, and you filmed his activities for the last few days. You've covered the trial. So we'll post that, of course, on our website. But, I mean, (laughs) when he came out of the, the courthouse after having been convicted on two counts of ignoring a lawful subpoena issued not by the committee, but by the entire United States Congress, I might add. Right, uh, right. He said, I stand with Donald Trump and the Constitution. This was a day after the country and the world had seen the last of the January 6th uh, committee hearings where it made it pretty clear that Donald Trump has absolutely contempt for the Constitution. So, uh, but I guess it doesn't matter, right? He's talking to his people.
1: That's exactly right, you know it doesn't it, their idea of what the cons- folks folks in these in these big movement rallies and whatnot they they don't know from one article to the next in the u s Constitution they have a notion of the Constitution that's been fed to them largely actually through some religious rights circles right that it's divinely inspired and that it's you know the blueprint for a Christian nation and all that kind of stuff. Um, So the claim of the Constitution has become sort of a a cultural marker for the right, but it really doesn't have anything to do with the contents of the Constitution. And let me tell you the origin of why he kept saying that uh, from—he said the same thing uh, at the stakeout, the media stakeout, you know, um, outside the courthouse the day before What happened was that the prosecution, the government, showed screenshots of articles that um, Bannon was posting to his Getter account, which is kind of like a a right-wing Twitter type thing. And uh, and they were headlines that said things like, Bannon, we will not comply, (laughs) right? This is the day after the subpoena had been, or that he had defied. Uh, the document delivery deadline, you know, we will not comply. And then he also said in the same interview, and it's part of the same headline, uh, I stand with Trump and the Constitution. So once the government had used that as evidence of the fact that he willfully did not comply with the subpoena, because after all, he could have come in um, for testimony and just said, well, I can't talk about that because of executive privilege. And he you know, he wouldn't be in the same pickle. Um, you know, th- th- that that was what he was trying to do, was to kind of, you know, subvert uh, the use of that headline in the government's case.
0: Well, but the bottom line, surely, is that the he was subpoenaed in order to testify and provide documents. Now that right. he's been convicted, and we don't know what the sentence will be, although the judge, I think, is kind of annoyed by him. Maybe he will give him a stiffer sentence than the normal 30 days. But the bottom line is it's not a victory in the sense that one, he's not going to testify and two, he's not going to hand over the documents. He doesn't have to now that he's convicted.
1: Yeah, it's very hard to see what what happens from here. Um, But uh, yes, I believe you're right. I don't think he has to um, do anything once he's paid his debt to society, right? So... Um, so, yeah, I do think that he won't get much of a sentence. I, I don't think the judge may be annoyed with him, but the judge was let the, they let the, he let the prosecute. I'm sorry, the defense get away with a whole lot of BS. And I mean, a lot of innuendo that, you know, caused the government to have to object and object and object. But, you know, even though you can tell the jury, uh, don't, you know. Don't listen to that. That's been stricken from the record. I mean, they're sitting there. Right. And he and he was just trying to introduce a reasonable doubt. Right. But using really, really hinky methods like challenging Benny Thompson's signature, things like that on, a, on the subpoena, that kind of thing. So but my my feeling about the judge you know, at first I thought, "Wow, oh, this is going to be a tough judge because he had so narrowed the scope of what they were able to argue as a defense. He really he really did not want to look like he was having these people in.
0: Well, he was appointed by Trump, so there was some doubts about him from the beginning. But Bannon is a grifter. He's a kind of mini-me of the big grifter, right. Trump. Right, Right. And he's already uh, shook down the MAGA people to build the wall on the southern border that he pocketed about a million dollars, and his co-conspirators are facing jail time, and he would be in jail, but for the pardon that Trump gave him at the last minute. Mm -hmm. So won't he be out there fundraising? I mean, you just mentioned Benny Thompson, and he brought that up a couple of times in his grandstanding outside of the court, where... I mean, he's got a ridiculous ego, doesn't he? he? He thinks that Benny Thompson is, you know, an equal in a sense. He should be in the courthouse with me. I should. We should be duking no, it out. I mean, in, he any, thinks
1: Benny Thompson is a lesser.
0: Right. What well, he thinks is <laughs> not he's, an he,
1: equal and as a lesser.
0: <laughs> right. But he's also hiding from Bannon because he's hiding behind the idea that he has COVID, and he said right. made the same accusation against Biden. I mean, right. you know, there's no. There's no limit to the lunacy that they put forth. These people, along well,
1: with... yeah, it is all part of the grift, Ian. You know, because this is the kind of narrative that you know this is not out there for you know reporters to believe or normal people to believe. So much this is about raising dough, and you know, given uh, the position that he took on you know, whether or not to, you know, uh, complying with the subpoena, there's money to be made over the subpoena, right? A way to rile up his pot. He's got a podcast that he claims, you know, on Apple alone, you know, 100 million downloads. So he's got ways to, he's got an avenue for putting out the narrative he is crafting from uh, this particular, you know, adventure in federal court and then the the appeal will give him even more and the sentencing of course in 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 October and you know at most even if he goes to prison it's it's going to be probably for a month or two, you know, total. And it's going to help him to raise a lot
0: of dough. So the best thing to do then Given this outside ego, and I mean, everything that he does is so anti-democratic. He's he's really the antichrist of democracy, is he not?
1: <laughs> That's a great description. Yeah, he, I, I I mean, he his behavior is very sociopathic, right? I mean, huh. he's just all about burning it all down. Huh. He's all about destruction. Carnage, Uh, carnage, carnage, right, right. And uh, he had promised to go medieval, right, (laughs) on his opponent. Well, you know, that didn't quite pan out in this courtroom, but who knows what can happen in the terms of like stochastic action, what the scholars call stochastic action, where you rile people up uh, to the point where they act violently, um, thinking that they are doing your bidding.
0: So, again, do you think it's possible to neutralize him by ignoring him? I mean, there's no way that his f- followers are going to ignore him, but why should the mainstream press feed his ego?
1: Well, I think there's ways to... I think it's important to cover Bannon, because I do think he's an important figure. I mean, he is not the great man of history that he presents himself as, but it doesn't mean he's not dangerous. And he is good at kind of putting together often short-lived but ad hoc coalitions of different groups, right? So he still has influence in the European right, and he's part of a global movement of authoritarianism, which is why he needs to be covered. Now, do we need to reiterate every single word that comes out of his mouth without context? No, the context is critical. But sometimes we do, at risk of amplifying his BS, we do risk, uh, you know, we do run that risk, but it's still important to report kind of where he is, what he's up to.
0: Well, just in closing, uh, Adele, Stan, the January 6th committee in its final hearing on Thursday night, at the end of the hearing they played the clip that Mother Jones got hold of him where he was talking to a group of Followers of the, the Chinese billionaire, Miles right. Clark, who funds Bannon. And it's extraordinary. Just before the elections in December of 2020, there he is predicting exactly everything that Trump would do down to the minute. It was uncanny how accurate the predictions were. So you can't discount the fact that this guy is in on the strategy.
1: Oh, I, I think that's very clear. I mean, I can't say that I have proof of that. But there was reports uh, even um, before January 6th that Trump was in, you know, telephone contact with Bannon. So he's yes, indeed, he's very much a part of the strategy. Uh, and it's just clear that, you know, he he knows that his grift is attached to Trump at the moment, his you know his local grip in terms of getting Joe, what happens if that that you know goes asunder or if a DeSantis comes along and bumps Trump out of the authoritarianism uh, you know uh, top spot? I don't know
0: well, Adele, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it
1: always great to be with you, Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Adele Stan, who's an independent journalist and longtime chronicler of the right wing of American politics. She is the winner of the Hillman Prize in opinion and analysis journalism, and her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, The American Prospect, and The New Republic, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. And she has an article in The New Republic. Stephen Bannon will be convicted, and he'll probably be just fine with that. We can take a brief station break and back examining the rise of the right and how American fascism was never exercised but was merely obscured beneath romantic myth making. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sarah Churchwell, a professor of American Literature and Humanities at the School of Advanced Study of the University of London. She's the author of Behold America, The Entangled History of America First, and The American Dream. And her latest book just out is The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind, and the Lies America Tells. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Churchwell. Thank you so much. So I take it one of the things that uh, propelled you to write this uh, new book, The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells, is the fact that you're living in uh, London, you're an American abroad, and people are coming up to you all the time saying, what's happened to America? What's what's going on? What's happening in America? What the hell's happened to America? So <laughs> this is your defense, <laughs> yeah, defense <literally>. mechanism. <laughs> right? Well,
2: it's. it's- it's just an answer to the question, right? It's saying that this is this is a serious question and an understandable one, and um, and and yeah, it is something that I get asked literally in so many words all of the time, not just you know in professional situations, but socially. You know, everybody just wants to know, and so um, and and particularly, you know, that came to a head, of course, around this January sixth insurrection and I will call it an insurrection uh, not a riot um, last year when the whole world was just watching you know with their head clutched in their hands saying what is going on and uh, and for me it was um, I've been thinking about this for a long time and in fact've been I've been drafting the book in, in uh, various you know versions and, and working on it and then realized when the insurrection happened, that I that I needed to do yet another draft because it actually had to take this into account, and that what what I was seeing, what we were all seeing unfold in front of us, was just further affirmation of an intuition that I'd had five years ago, four or five years ago, um, that that Gone with the Wind was the story that could. Help us understand the mess that we're in. Um, although Gone with the Wind can only do it mostly by accident, <laughs> but still, if you if you look carefully at what Gone with the Wind is doing um, and understand the history that it's lying about, and then some of the other aspects of American history that we've consistently lied about—some big aspects—and bring all of those together, then you can you, you can begin to understand how violence erupted last year.
0: And of course, we all remember the Confederate flag being hauled through the Congress by one of the rioters or insurrectionists. And uh, that, of course, after a bit of civil war, that's probably the first and only time that ever happened in the U.S. case Exactly. Precisely,
2: the first time in history and, and, and not after civil war, right? That was the whole point. The civil war was fought to stop that from happening. Right. And then the and and they successfully stopped it from happening. The Confederate flag never flew in the U.S. Capitol. So it was represented once or twice, but not the flag. And um and then and and then as you say, there was this famous one of the more iconic images from the insurrection, was of this man parading past the Senate chamber holding it aloft. And and you know I begin the book by saying for anybody who understands the full history, the full history of what that flag represents and the story of how America fought over it, and the 160 years that have passed since then, you really have to understand that full history to, 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 to fully grasp what a shocking sight that was, and, and frankly what a revolting sight it was, and to understand what, it, what that moment represented about, again, the lies that America held, um, and, the, and the lies about the Confederate flag are, are one among among many. Um, that, that that need to be understood as for the symbolism for the dark symbolism of that moment to be to be fully addressed.
0: So what did you make of the well, it's not the final hearing, but at least they're taking a recess the January 6th committee through August and they'll be back in September. But they did have a primetime hearing on Thursday, which presumably since it was on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, and MSNBC and PBS uh, probably got pretty high ratings. What did you make of it, Sarah?
2: <laughs> well, I think um, I think they're doing a tremendous job. It's it's, um, it's a, a relief, frankly, to see um, the the case being made for democracy and against the the corruption and the crookedness of the Trump administration. To be to be made through the kinds of showmanship that enabled Trump to leverage his celebrity profile, uh, you know, to to the White House, literally, you know, to get him to the White House. He was manipulating the media, uh, as we all know, to a great extent, and 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 understanding how to use um, both mainstream media and social media to his own advantage. And finally, we're seeing, you know, the side of democracy hit back. I think with. With equal force and much more integrity and much more principle, and what we are seeing is, is the force of fact being finally being being brought to bear against this pathological liar and his, uh, you know, compulsively pathological liar. And again, the world saw that um, and his array of of you know fake news and alternative facts and alternative histories and all of this propaganda and disinformation that swirls around Trump. And then to see this powerful piece of very carefully constructed evidence building to explode the lie, just to take apart, dismantle the big lie, and to do it with absolutely compelling television. And, you know, I think one of the really important things that they've done is understand how this, finally understand how this stuff um, circulates in social media and the media sphere. And so to um, create... Digestible moments, but again, they're digestible moments of fact telling and truth telling. And I think it's like for it's like a it's like a political cleanse um, to just finally w- watch them wash some of the filth out of the American political system that has been clogging it for so many years. And 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 it it, it does feel like a breath of fresh air. And you sit there just thinking, you know, I feel my shoulders kind of relax, and it's like, oh, there at last, there's the truth, there's facts, there's documented. Uh, you know, evidence and, and witness testimony and, and carefully constructing this this story piece by piece in a way that that anyone except the absolutely most, you know, biased and willfully blind, I think, has to accept the, the legitimacy of the story they tell
0: And again, I'm speaking with Sarah Churchwell, who's a professor of American Literature and Humanities at the School of Advanced Study of the University of London. She's the author of Behold America, the Entangled History of America First, and the American Dream, and her latest book, Just Out is the Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. And in terms of Trump being the head of the GOP and and all but announced that he's running again in spite of the evidence that against him that's been presented by the January 6th Committee, we're learning now from Jonathan Swan at Axios that the former president and his allies are preparing to radically reshape the federal government if he's reelected, and they're going to fire thousands and thousands of civil servants and put in loyalists to him and Trump's America First ideology, and they're not just going after the typical targets of, of the right wing and the epa and the irs but they're going to go up to the justice department the fbi and the national security and intelligence establishment the state department and the pentagon so these are apparently i mean if you read the article it's pretty scary they're, these are oh the, i've read it yeah uh, <laughs> yeah so what yeah, do you make yeah. of it
2: well i mean i agree it's pretty scary and but it's also not remotely surprising um and i i've, I've I mean, I'm, I was frankly surprised that they were so disorganized and hapless through most of the administration, but um, but now, of course, they're 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 mustering their forces and their arguments because they've seen how successful it was even when they were disorganized and chaotic. And there have been indications that they've been thinking along these lines for some time. I included in my book a, um, an essay that came out last year uh, from a, a right-wing think tank talking about the plan to install an American Caesar. And first, they talked about this figure in abstract terms, um, and then they they quickly started referring to him directly as Trump, and talking about how um, from the inauguration, from the that in the inauguration he would declare a state of emergency and declare himself, you know, effectively a kind of dictator president. What you're describing, what the Axios article describes, is basically our Orban politics, and we know they're following Orban. We know that you know Tucker Carlson is is lauding Orban to you know to. Um, to Fox viewers, and, and we know that Republican leaders are, are extolling him. They're talking about him at CPAC and the conservative conferences. So we've known about this for some time, and, and it's just really the, the logical next step. And and the fact is, and it's a playbook, right? They're following it. And they, they describe these appointees that they're this, it was an executive order that Trump passed that then Biden immediately rescinded, but um, they're saying they will now restore where, uh, where Trump is. Uh, they've created this thing that they're calling F-level F, or fox right um, level appointees and um and I just said f for fox but it's also f for fascism I mean it just it is just textbook fascism gutting the government gutting the civil service and replacing it with pure loyalists um, and I, and, I, and you know and, and they've already been trying to do that with the judiciary that was what they did throughout Trump's administration to you know certain great effect and they're also talking about stuffing the state legislatures with trump loyalists as well and passing laws that would enable them to overturn election results that they didn't like so um you know they they they're getting all of the machinery in motion so that if he is able to take power again the full authoritarian turn will take place and and um and and they will have total control of the government and it is an event style plan. That's what they that's what they want to do. And um, so as I say, I, I found it I found it shocking but not surprising, as they say now. I mean it's a horrifying thing to read, but it's absolutely what they've been they've been trialing this idea for some time and Trump started doing it before you know, after he lost the election and before the um, insurrection in the um in the interim. He you know, that's exactly what he was trying to do was firing people who were who were saying that Biden had won and, and replacing replacing those uh, people with his loyal, his loyalists. So he's already been doing it. It's just it's just being more
0: systematic about it. Now. So since you've written about the American First movement in your book, The Entangled History of America First, what's your sense of uh, the kind of numbers in this country? Because one of the things that's so appalling about the current political mood on the political left in this country amongst progressives is that as opposed to tucker carlson and the right which is animated and active and have these dark plans a lot of the progressive left is just sort of disappointed in biden uh, and they're more disappointed in biden than they are alarmed at the possibility which is real and present danger of american fascism
2: yeah look i mean it's a, it's a complicated question about how about the state of the democratic party and the and and the left and um you know, not something I can probably do in a in a thumbnail, but but I would just say a couple of things. I I think that there is, um, you know, I do think that that the democratic leadership have by and large failed to fight fire with fire. They have not um, been nearly as ruthless as, as they need to be against these kinds of tactics. In my view, it does seem clear that you know Biden is Biden is bound and determined to to you know to 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 believe that. Uh, almost through sheer force of will or hope that he can return to a kind of, you know, bipartisan um, politics, and that and that the people across the aisle are his friends rather than um, absolutely, uh, ex- you know, existentially committed to the eradication of the left. So I think you know, that's that's a problem, and I think that it's it, as you say it's also a problem that the Democrats are you know uh, attacking each other. I think that's true to a certain degree, but it's also clear that there is an enormous amount. Of anger and uh, resistance and defiance um, to the right as well, and I think we can overstate these these stories. And of course, they serve the right as well. The whole Dems in disarray uh, story about you know that the, that the media likes to likes to tell. And the, but the numbers that the the, the viewing numbers that the um, J6 hearings are getting um, speak to the concern of you know, wide swathes of the American uh, public about this, and um, and certainly the numbers just to get. The most obvious and most recent example, the numbers in uh, you know in relation to the Dobbs decision overturning rosie wade are are you know pretty undeniable, and the support for gay marriage um equally undeniable. So I think that the the concomitant hostility to the radical minority rights um is deep and real. It's just i do think there's a certain extent to where The political horse racing media likes to talk about the guns in disarray, and that's there. I'm not denying its existence, but I think it can be overplayed.
0: Well, the hope is it's a silent majority. The sleeping giant will arise before November, but I'm curious if indeed there's any kind of polling or any kind of figures that we can pin about the coalition on the right you know which i guess is a coalition of southern racists libertarian billionaires right-wing militias christian nationalists alt-right and american firsters so what kind of numbers are we talking about because it's clearly there are more people appalled at the possibility of trump returning than there are excited by it and biden did win 7 million plus more votes than trump Trump, of course, is only focused and understands he could never win the popular vote. Is focused entirely on the electoral college, which is a relic, of course, that's counter-majoritarian. So what, do you have any idea what we're talking about in terms of these people who want to take over America and create a kind of one-party neo-fascist state?
2: Well, I don't. And I think it's very hard to get a hold of those numbers. I mean, it's not the sort of thing that, that, you know, as you say, these plans are being drawn up and we get reports about them and they and they get, you know, leaked to the media and or, or I should say leaked. I mean I mean these these AC- represent, you know, obviously they they say at the top of it that it's monthly investigative reporting. But the but, you know, the clearly the plans are being drawn up. Um do, do they have, do you know, we keep hearing this number about the seventy million Trump voters who still absolutely believe the big lie. Um and yet, you know, Tucker Carlson's numbers are around six million. I think, right? So, so is it is it really the case that 70 million Americans absolutely believe this? I simply don't know, and I don't I don't think anybody knows, and I don't know to what degree these hearings can be shifting opinion. And I don't think we'll know that for a while. I think the midterms will be the first real test of that, um, of whether they were able to um, to shift the needle at all. And and I think there's there it's just it, it's too complex a set of uh, of cognitive distortions for pollsters to get a hold of. It isn't a simple. I don't think it's a simple. Uh, even as do you think that you know that that Trump won the election? But as I say, I think that those those numbers are shifting anyway. So I certainly don't have a sense of what kinds of numbers we're talking about of adamant Trump supporters still to this day. Um, what I will say is that, you know, speaking of the of the J6 hearing, um, what I find the most horrifying really out of all of it is that a lot of the the people who have stood up and, and appeared willingly before the uh, committee um, and who have spoken out against Trump. So I'm thinking people like Rusty Bowers, the Arizona Secretary of State, who said that he believes that the Constitution is divinely inspired, um, frankly, for, you know, those of us who believe in separation of church and state is actually a, frankly, worrying statement. Um, and, um, and then he said, you know, he was absolutely uh, um, opposed to what Trump uh, asked him to do uh, in Arizona in terms of overturning the election. And then afterwards, he was asked if he would vote for Trump again. And he said, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Barr was deposed, saying that the big lie was bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. He said it over and over and over again. And then after that deposition, after those tapings, when he was running around the country trying to sell his book, people asked him if he would vote for Trump again. And he said, yes. So the, I, I, for me, this is the real worry is, is that, you know, the people who, um, who showed up for the, for the, you know, as you say, it's not the final installment of the J6 hearings, but the end of act one, um, we've got the summer interval now, um, the intermission, um, and, and, you know, the, the people like, um, like Pottinger and, and Sarah Matthews, they didn't resign until January 6th. You know, they were with him through the bitter end. So there are a lot of loyalists who were, uh, you know, who are still fighting for this and, and um, did not draw the line to where those the place where those people drew um, it. So um, I think we're in a lot of trouble. I do not think it's the case that that the that the Dobbs decision is going to prove to be some kind of magic feather that lets us all, you know, that lets liberals know they can fly and suddenly mobilizes the Democrats out, you know, into midterms, and suddenly we defeat Trumpism with, you know, one mighty blow of American democracy because we actually inhabit a Capra throne. I don't think that's what's going to happen. And I think this is going to be a bitter and painful fight um, for, people keep talking about, you know, a fight for the soul of America, and it is that, um, but it's a a fight for, for, you know, control of the country as well. It's a fight for the rule of law, it's a fight for our political system, and um, and it's a bitter and real fight. And I think it's a fight to the to the death in terms of the the fact that one one worldview uh, um, is going to have to be will be comprehensively defeated because they are existentially opposed. Um, and so, you know, it is a fight between democracy and fascism and democracy cannot accommodate fascism and fascism will not accommodate democracy. So either they're going to wipe us out or we're going to have to figure out a way to disable them because we're not in the business of extermination, but that we will have to figure out a way to disable them. And we will have to figure out a way to, to, um, to reeducate our country, to rebuild the foundations of our, of our civil society and our and, and a liberal democracy and the, and the faith in the rule of law and the trust in the institutions, that's not a that's not a small project. And I'm by no means confident that we can do it.
0: So just in closing, Sarah, I'm, sorry, Jeff, I'm very you're... pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, without being Pollyannish, let's end try and end on something of a positive note. And in terms of the of your new book, "The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind, and the Lies America Tells," uh, you make the case that American fascism was never exercise, but merely obscured beneath romantic myth-making, and nothing was more in that category than Gone with the Wind. And then prior to that, of course, you had another racist film, Birth of a Nation. So one there's another film, though, that was fairly recent uh, called Cold Mountain. I don't know whether you ever saw it, but there's a scene in that yeah. where, where there's a this overworked Southern doctor in this in this antebellum mansion, that's been turned into a field hospital, and there are all these poor Southern boys with limbs missing, being, being amputated, etc. And these southern bells are sort of like Scarlet O'Hara are scurrying around taking care of the boys. And the doctor says to one of the nurses, "When will these, these poor boys, these farmers and blacksmiths and carpenters, ever wake up and realize?" that they're fighting for the plantation owner's right to replace them with slaves. And that sort of leads me to this question about whether there's a strategy on the part of the Democrats to talk about what working Americans have in common and the extent to which they're being manipulated by these romantic myths.
2: Well, look, I can't speak to the Democrat strategy. I mean, sadly, they're not confiding (laughs) in me yet, but, you know, maybe someday. Um... But, um, but I, I agree with you, you know, with, with your implication that we would do well to be framing the debate in those terms and to, to understand that this is a divide-and-conquer strategy and that it always has been and that that is one of the continuities, you know, as you rightly say. But, but having said that, you know, I shouldn't have said I was pessimistic. That's, that wasn't the right word. I'm worried. <laughs> I'm deeply, deeply worried. Um, and I'm by no means confident in the outcome. But I also, you know, taking a deep dive into 160 years of American history and trying to follow this thread from the the aftermath of the Civil War through the myth about it and the lies about it, and, and then up to the myths and the lies that we tell today. Um, if you study 160 years of, of American history or all of American history, going going back to to the um, you know the indigenous people before settler colonialism you still have to see progress in the United States. And that progress in the United States is gradual, painful, grinding toward a true multiracial inclusive democracy. And it is, a, it is always fight And it is by no means a straight line, but I, I believe that, you know, I believe it's a, I, the way I, the image I was used for it is I believe it's spiral. It feels like we're circling back. But we're actually—it's the spiral, and you edge forward, and each time you edge forward a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer. We're definitely in the circling back moment right now, and so we can see all we can feel is that backwards push, and all of that feel of regression and and loss of momentum and loss of energy. But we can still see the outcomes and progress. We can see the the, the stats that I just mentioned—absolutely extraordinary statistics in uh, in America about su- the overwhelming support for gay marriage, the overwhelming support for interracial marriage, which a few decades ago was simply not the case. And so so the, the real signs of progress toward multiracial democracy are there, and that means that there are an awful lot of people who will not take this kind of authoritarian or ban turn uh, lying down. My own my own feeling is that, um, you know, people ask me if i if I feel like I have hope. And and I say, you know, I don't I don't currently have hope because hope feels passive and it feels uh, at the moment to me, it feels sentimental. I'm speaking on a very personal level, right? But what I have is anger. And what I have is determination and activism. And what I have is an absolute defiance and, and feeling that, you know, we're going down with a fight if we go down, you know, and, and I'm not giving them the country. I'm not surrendering the country to them. So we can be deeply worried but it has to just activate us and it has to make us fight back with everything that we have. And in my case my weapons are history and facts and storytelling and arguments and persuasion because that's what I know how to do. But I think that we all have to activate whatever whatever tools we have in our arsenal we have to we have to put to work and we have to recognize that this is that these people are deadly serious and they are not going to walk away from power. They can they've got the keys to the inner chamber and they are determined to walk in and lock the door behind them, and, and we have to stop them however we
0: can. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, as you've made clear, hope is not a plan. I thank you for joining us here today, Sarah Churchwell. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Churchwell, who's a professor of American Literature and Humanities at the School of Advanced Study of the University of London, She's the author of *Behold America: The Entangled History of America First and *The American Dream*, and her latest book, just out, is *The Wrath to Come: Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells*. We can take a brief station break. We're back investigating the crisis in Sri Lanka and the extent of the corruption, mismanagement, and looting of the country by the ruling Rajapaska family.
3: There's a great and a bloody fight round this whole world tonight. In the battle, the bombs and shrapnel rain. Hitler told the world around he would tear our union down. But our union's gonna break them slavery chains. Our union's gonna break them slavery chains. I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky. Could see every farm and every town. I could see all the people in this whole wide world. That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down. That's a union that'll tear
0: And joining us now is Deepa Olapalli, who is the Research Professor of International Affairs and Associate Director of the SEGA Centre for Asian Studies at George Washington University, whose research focuses on the international relations of South Asia. She's also directs the Rising Powers Initiative, a major research program that tracks and analyzes foreign policy debates in aspiring powers in Asia and Eurasia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Deepa Olapalli.
4: Thank you very
0: much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, already the unpopular, newly selected president of Sri Lanka, Wickramasinghe, just after he was sworn in on Friday, he unleashed his security forces on a protest camp just outside the presidential office, beat up a lot of people, uh, sacked the tents, beat up a BBC journalist and confiscated his film, not exactly a uh, encouraging sign. What's your sense of where the politics or this crisis in Sri Lanka is heading?
4: Yes, uh, of course Sri Lanka has been ha- in the midst of this crisis for the last several months and it has uh, come to a head, I think just a couple of days ago with the uh, events that you just described. It had been expected that... Uh, with a new dispensation in Colombo, that that might have taken some of the sting away from the protesters. But the problem here is that Ronald Mikramasinghe is seen as being far too closely connected to the Rajapaksa's that uh, got disgracefully um, uh, unseated and Gotabaya uh, had to flee. So the you know I'm not entirely surprised at what. Um, Ronald it did, uh, we have to step back and realize that he has been prime minister six times before, the, lo- the uh, most number of times anyone has been in that position in Sri Lanka. And his, his dream has been to uh, be president. He's finally got it. He's not going to let it go easily. And because he was uh, basically selected and appointed by Gotabaya. Rajapaksa, as he was fleeing, because he was still the president, he was appointed. He appointed Ranil as the acting president. He really does not have the credibility or the legitimacy. At least um, for most of the people, I mean, anyone I speak to in Sri Lanka, uh, most people do not think he has a legitimacy. And therefore, it's going to be in having had taken this kind of an action against the, the pro- protesters. Obviously, it was a bad move. Now, of course, it also shows that he has no intention of uh, of leaving anytime soon, and he's going to take whatever action necessary to stay in power. So he sent a very powerful signal on day one.
0: Well, I spoke uh, recently with Shanta Devarajan, who is a former World Bank official, and he was actually involved, he is involved in... Uh, Figuring out how to deal with the debt crisis, but I asked him. I yeah. said, Rajapaska fled on a jet to first to the Maldives and then to Singapore. And what was on the jet? Was he carrying a bunch of money? You know, like for example, the the former president of Afghanistan.
1: Afghanistan,
0: yeah, fled with something like eighty five million dollars in cash. So. Shanda said, "Oh no, that's not the real story. But is it the real story? When you look at the Rajapaska family, you have his brother Mahinda was f- formerly the the president and minister of finance, and then Gotabaya, who just fled to Singapore. He was called the Terminator because of his uh, brutal conduct of the civil war that ended in two thousand and nine. He was also minister of defence, etc. And then Basil." Rajapaska was mm-hmm. Minister of Economic Development. He was called Mr. Ten Percent because of the shakedowns that he allegedly conducted. And then Chamill Rajapaska uh, was Speaker of Parliament. And then the scion of the family, Namal Rajapaska, apparently he's been accused of corruption and money laundering, etc. So this is a ru- ruling family that's, first of all, they've been squandering the Treasury. Have they not building vanity projects like soccer stadiums and and broadcast towers and and a, and a port that the Chinese built that nobody uses, so am I am I presenting an, a, a fair picture of this family?
4: I I think you have given a, a pretty accurate I would say uh, snapshot of who this family is. They have been in power since two thousand five. They were only out of power for four years between two thousand fifteen and two thousand nineteen. Um, uh, until recently. So they've had a long time to amass the wealth and to amass their influence. Now, the reason that they, first of all, got into power was because in 2009, uh, uh, well, they came into power in 2005, but they consolidated their position because they fought the brutal war against uh, the Tamil LTTE, and they were seen as, a, as victorious after a long war. And, you know, they represented the majoritarian Sinhalese uh, chauvinist uh, groups, which was pretty strong. And so when they delivered the victory, there was really, they were swept in and they were able to maintain that position in part because they also strengthened uh, institutions like the executive presidency. Very difficult to dislodge them once... uh, they they were in power with those institutions. The military again stronghold there, um, and you know the opposition. I have to say was not the strongest. I mean they were splintered, they were weaker, and the opposition was uh, in part led by the current president Ronald Rukungwesinga. When he came to power in twenty fifteen, Ronald Rukungwesinga came into power with the breakaway faction from the Rajabaksa group, there was some hope that this would be a kind of a national unity government that would then bring the Rajabaksa family, uh, hold them accountable for a number of things. One was the war crimes that they had been uh, committed during their uh, prosecution of the war, uh, the Civil War. And then two, about the corruption that you mentioned, that that needed to be investigated much more closely and um, take them to task for that. Neither of these things happened under Arnul Vikramasinghe and Sulasena, who was the breakaway leader. Um, So there was an opportunity during the 2015-2019 interim period to take the Rajapaksa. Uh, and and look at the places, see what exactly was going on. I mean, like you said, there was certainly a lot of opportunity um, from about from the time they came into power uh, in two thousand five to uh, to loot the treasury, to uh, gain access and uh, so on. Because also they were given a large scale funding of, as you mentioned, these infrastructure projects that were from mostly from the Chinese under the Belt and Road Initiative, which, uh, you know, was funneling a huge amount of money into many of the countries in the south. But, you know, Sri Lanka is very strategic It's in the Indian Ocean um, on a very important critical sea lines, energy sea lines. And so when uh, and also the traditional patron uh, or um, uh, funding source and so forth had been India, which had stepped back, in part because of the of the war against uh, the uh, LTT against the Tunnels that had been undertaken in such a harsh way and brutal way by the Rajabaksa. So it gave an opening. And the Chinese were not, it was much less transparent than other international loans and debts and so forth. And so we don't know exactly. But what we know is that what we see in the end are a bunch of white elephants that aren't producing any revenue. So, the re, for example, the Hambantata port that uh, was built was in the Rajapaksa family's uh, own district. So, you know, they delivered a huge project promising jobs and, um, you know, the economy to pick up around that area, but nothing happened. Because it was simply an unviable project. Um, so all that has now come to um, you know, haunt them and the country.
0: Um, With $50 billion not- in debt, right? $50 billion.
4: $54, billion. $54 billion in debt. And just in 2022 alone, $7 billion went up. And in April of this year, the country declared um, uh, default. This was the first time that any country in Asia had to, uh, had to go into default uh, after Pakistan did it in 1999. So it's a pretty ignominious position to be in. And um, the Rajabakas had a huge role in that. Obviously, it was not their only uh, their role, but they had a very large, role uh, in bringing the country to the edge of uh, what they're experiencing now. Both, um, and of course, you know, it's not just the economic uh, meltdown, but you also, it's coupled with the political uh, breakdown as well. And so really, it's got a double whammy. I think this is really unprecedented. And, you know, when you look across um, many countries, this, this, this is very, uh, almost quite unique. And again, it is an important country because of its location as well, and because it's in the midst because of the power uh sort of the great power competition that's going on between the, India, China, and uh, the
0: west and of course the the international Monetary Fund says that there are thirty eight developing countries in debt distress or or in risk of default. And that includes Pakistan, Ghana, and other countries. And Zambia, of course, has also defaulted. Right. Now, I just want to say,
4: right, one thing I, I should mention is that, uh, you know, what uh, Shanta Devraj said, suggested that he did, that Rajapaksa didn't have to fly out with a bunch of money um, hidden in, a, in the jet liner. Yeah, probably not, because perhaps they've uh, already gotten it out That's in it. one form or the other. I don't know. Who knows? Right but it could be that you know these people have offshore accounts and so on and uh obviously we don't know the details of these things but we can speculate
0: sure well if they were stealing the country blind while they're in power it's you can assume that they made sure that they kept some of that money offshore so but the real story surely uh, deeper is that the people are suffering right because the country's in default They can't import food and medicine and basic needs. So that's the real story, isn't it?
4: That's one of the... uh, I mean, the humanitarian crisis really is something that uh, gets somewhat, you know, downplayed because the economic and political crisis is so severe, but all you need to look at uh, are the images coming out, right? The... The vehicles, the snaking vehicles, lines, uh, hours on end to get fuel and so forth. Medicine, people are just telling other, you know, telling themselves, just don't get sick because we there's no way to go and get medicines. You know, it's come to that situation. And what is also, um, you know, all of this, of course, has been ex- uh, ex- accentuated by the Ukraine food um, uh, war and the food crisis. That's Global, almost, and the energy prices, but in Sri Lanka, of course, um, the the, what is kind of surprising is the fact that we haven't seen a huge amount of um, outside help come in. We have seen, and um, even the um, energy minister just yesterday was talking about the fact that he's pleading with countries to send fuel uh, for basic, you know, uh, to, to get the economy going somewhat. The only country that stepped in is India. They have sent in um, almost three to four billion dollars now uh, of various types of assistance. They're sending medicine, fuel, uh, food. Um, of course, it's 34 miles away and it's very, very close. And they are, have been the first responder. But I've been surprised at the lack of uh, basic humanitarian assistance. I would have expected much greater. External involvement, um, and the Chinese have really been um, off the scene. They've kind of done a vanishing act, which is really a big story as well, because up to this point they were in the economic driver's seat in Sri Lanka. They've kind of disappeared for a of reasons, but so right. yeah, I certainly minimize the humanitarian crisis. And focus on you and know, the others but um, but you know um, and and that's the other issue that is why you're seeing so many people out on the street they're feeling it Sure, you know personally feeling it and so they want to change
0: right we've run out of time I'm afraid but I'm glad that you give, you've given us the proper focus on what's happening in Sri Lanka and I appreciate your time
4: thank you so much for having me again and uh, look forward to listening
0: Absolutely. And again, I've been speaking with Deepa Alapali, who is a research professor of international affairs and associate director of the Seeger Center for Asian Studies at George Washington University, whose research focuses on the international relations of South Asia. She also directs the Rising Powers Initiative, a major research program that tracks and analyzes foreign policy debates in aspiring powers in Asia and Eurasia. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.